Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. This is the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 79, Girls Can't Be in the Mafia with Danielle West. I'm still here in Jakarta and life, life is pretty good, man. I'm still booking a lot of episodes out here. I've been recording a lot. I've been keeping real busy. This comes up in the episode, but I think Jakarta gets this rap as being uh, heavily trafficked. There's a lot of traffic. Uh, it's, it's busy. When I was in Singapore, one of my cab drivers asked, well, where are you going? Actually, it was a guy driving me to the airport, and I said, I'm going to Jakarta. He's like, oh, dirty city. <laughs> Lots of traffic. And uh, yeah, traffic's pretty crazy here. You kind of learn ways to mitigate that and to, to plan ahead and to take bikes as often as you can. So yeah, traffic is crazy, but there's a lot going on here. There's, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of hidden under the surface. There's a lot of art there's a lot of music. There's a lot of things to do to keep busy. A lot of really interesting stuff. It's a, it's a cool time to be in Jakarta, and I'm really enjoying it. The other night I went to the Dutch embassy, and there was a speaker there who's from the Netherlands originally. Uh, I believe he lives in Singapore now. His name is Max Boone, and he was a victim of the 2009 hotel bombing in Jakarta. And now he does work in helping to de-radicalize people who have been radicalized within Islam. So he showed a documentary and he gave a speech and there was a question and answer session. It was really interesting. In fact, there's a lot of really cool talks coming up at the Dutch embassy. I think there's one a month. So yeah, just say that to say there's a lot of cool things going on here. I'm enjoying my time. I might actually extend a couple more days because I keep getting... Uh, some yeses for the podcast. I got some people who I had emailed about a month ago who then reached out to me just within the last couple of days and said, hey, I think we can we can collaborate. So yeah, really, really cool stuff. So Danielle West is absolutely fascinating. Eccentric, colorful, has lived one of the craziest lives that I think you could ever even imagine, uh, ever even create as a, as a character of fiction. She's from the States originally, um, grew up in Massachusetts, had a tough upbringing. They were pretty poor, ended up basically in the state system of, uh, of care, of child care, and had a child in her teen years. We went into going to, to punk shows and hardcore shows, which I didn't even know about her. I didn't know we were going to go down that route, but really cool and exciting stories. Uh, she was an MMA fighter in the real early dark ages for uh, women's MMA. So she was really a pioneer in that sense. Fought from about, I think, 2003 to about 2012. Had some fights against some people who became pretty high-profile fighters within women's MMA. She was a dominatrix. We kind of brushed over that. I'm hoping if we record again, we, we, we can get into that a little bit. Um, she's now just put out her second book, which is Girls Can't Be in the Mafia. She works in, um, I think, graphic design. She does all, she's a Renaissance woman and has really insane, insane stories. I think that she deserves a, a screenplay or something to be made about her life because it's, it's fascinating. And we actually brushed over a lot of stuff where I think we could record an hour on some of the topics that we kind of brushed over. 
But in the interest of time, uh, we had to kind of keep things quick. I'd love to do this again with her, either here in Jakarta or in Singapore, and it sounds like we, uh, we may get a chance to do that. Right now, the book is available in Singapore and in different parts of Southeast Asia. Epigram is the publisher. They will have the ebook soon. So I believe if you are anywhere in the world, you can get that ebook. Once the book is available on Amazon in the States, I'll do a giveaway like I've done in the past. So if you're interested in getting the book in hard copy form, you can send me an email now or, or DM me or send me a message and uh, I'll give away a few once it's available. I'll figure out a way to do that. Usually it's like randomly or uh, you know first come, first serve based on the people who reach out to me. I'm also going to be doing something in the near future where I answer your questions. I get a lot of questions about what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, uh, how to sustain long-term travel. I get questions about financing it. Uh, how do you stay healthy while traveling? Are you lonely? Do you miss people? What do you do with your day? Uh, some of these questions are from friends and family. Some I get through the podcast. A lot I get just from people that I meet who are interested. So I thought it would be cool to do a question and answer episode. So I'm going to put that out there that if you want to ask a question, and uh, you know it's pertinent to, to what I'm doing. I'll read that out in the episode. I'll give you a shout out for whoever you are. So if you want to send a question in, you can email me at thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail. You can DM me on Instagram or on Facebook. Uh, you could leave a comment with your question, any of those things. And um, the ones that I think kind of match up well with what I'm doing, I'll, I'll read those out. I might do an Instagram live for that too. I'm looking to kind of utilize that a little bit more than I've done. So, yeah, check uh, or send me a message if you if you'd like to have uh, one of your questions read out on the air, or if you are curious at all in what I'm doing. Where am I going next? I don't know. I have a flight to Singapore in four days. I might change that just because, like I said, things are are continuing to be booked here in Jakarta. I know eventually I want to get from Singapore into Bhutan, but past that, I don't know. It's been really cool to not have a real schedule, to not really have a calendar or to have any sort of pressures. It's kind of cool living day to day and week to week. You know, it allows me to have things pop up and have me say yes to them, which is fun and exciting. And it's nice to not have to stick to a strict schedule. So uh, that's a benefit to the life that I've been living lately. If you want to support this podcast, I would appreciate that greatly. It will keep cool episodes coming out like this one with Danielle. It'll help me to keep giving away freebies like Girls Can't Be in the Mafia. If you want to do so financially, you can do so on Patreon. It is www.patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. That's a subscription-based service. I also have a PayPal. I know that some... People, like I listen to Chris Ryan, and sometimes people will say, hey, while you're traveling, here's five bucks for a beer. If you want to do that, you can just DM me or email me, and I'll, I'll give you the PayPal address. That would be really cool, too. Uh, but I also get that times are tough, and your uh, the content that you're consuming is vast, and you can't give to everybody. I get that. Trust me, uh, I totally get that. So if you cannot support monetarily and you want to support somehow, you can leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, or the podcast application of your choice. That helps more eyes and ears to be drawn to the podcast, and I would 
really appreciate that. Uh, at the very least, you can listen to this episode and others and subscribe, and you can give me some feedback and give me a follow on social media. Okay, folks, check out the show notes for this episode. It will have that Patreon link. It will have a link to Epigram. It will have a link to Danielle's social media. Give her a follow. Pick up the book. It's fascinating. She's hilarious. Her stories are wild. Hope you enjoyed this one. This is unusual. It's uh, usually not this bad. It's usually raining. Uh, it's interesting, though, because I was in Vietnam, and I'm doing work in Vietnam. And Vietnam's like, oh, it's fucking rainy right now. And oh, my God, it's coming down. And I was like, damn, bitches. Wish it was here. Because it's not. And it's like, I think, because I usually take motorbikes when I travel. Yeah. But it was like, I stepped outside, and I was like, oh, I'm going to be fucking melted. And I had a white shirt on, so... That is why I took a car here. So this is what I, I do for interviews is like I take a bike back. Yeah. But if I take a bike here, by the time I'm sweating. here, I, I look like I just went swimming. Ooh, you want to see a talk? I'm going to show you a magic trick that I show a lot of my customers. Okay, cool. All right. I'm all about magic. Hopefully I have it on me. <gasps> I'll narrate this because I'm recording, but I could cut this if we can't. No, you can do whatever you want. Okay. Just show you a cool trick. All right, stand up and lean in towards me. Yeah. Not in a creepy way, I promise. Okay. So I'm going to put this right here. It smells like... smell like rich white people. It smells like... <laughs> Sorry. That's what I say to my clients. I'm like, it smells like a rich white person, doesn't it, bitch? All right, so we're applying lotion to my temples in the back of my head. And there's a reason I'm doing the back of and my head. And behind my ears. Okay. Okay. So... If this know. helps me, I'm going to be so happy. You are. If it does help you, I'll show you. I'm, unfortunately, I usually carry an extra on me, but I don't. And I've also... Trying to be better about not giving out everything because I give everything away. And uh, my therapist is like, stop doing that. And so does my life coach. Or not my life coach, the lady who's training me to do life coaching or whatever. But that's uh, another story. But what I've just done to you. And is... try to. Oh, okay. Can yeah. you hear me? Yes. Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> so what this is, is um, actually it's a fight trick. So, you know, when you watch the UFC mm-hmm. or an MMA match or a boxing match, and in between rounds, you see that they put a bag of ice yes. on the back of their skull. So there's a little knob at the very back of your skull, and there's a bunch of nerve endings there. So if you're in a street fight, that's the first place you hit somebody. You'll fuck them up hardcore. In a proper boxing or MMA match, that spot is off limits because there's a bunch of nerve endings. One of those nerve endings, or one of the purposes of those nerve endings, I'm obviously not a neurologist, I have a sixth grade education, <laughs> but um, what that purpose is, it actually acts as a cooling system or like a basically temperature control system. So by adding a cooling cream, I trick your body into thinking it's cool outside. So if you wear this outside, it'll actually take your temperature down. Oh my God. Um, and again, because when you're fighting, obviously you have like a three to five minute round and your body's overheating and it's hard to get air in and you're like, holy shit, and you have one minute to recover. So one of the quickest ways to do that is to take your core body temperature down. They throw the ice on there, they get you to breathe, have you drink a bit of water, tell you something encouraging, you know, that your mom loves you and that you know what you're doing, even if you don't. But it helps focus you. 
I also found out from a friend of mine who's really into clubbing. She's like, oh, we have this for MDMA as well. She's like, we put a cold, you know, yeah, you put something cold. So again, if you're into clubbing and you overheat in the club, you take like a beer can. You could, this again, it works with beer cans as well as mint. Mint is just like, I don't know, a foofy cheat. But um, ice, beer cans, you know, cold, obviously. You put it at the back of the skull right there. You wait a few minutes, take a few breaths, and you're, you know, good to go. Oh, my God. I'm you're welcome. constantly embarrassed here. Like, why is no one else sweating like I am sweating? Because everybody works really... So, A, they're acclimatized, and yeah. B, I think what I love about Jakarta is the pace of life here is so chillaxed. Mm. I think a lot of people have this idea that Jakarta is like... A lot of people like to me are like, oh, it must be really hard and oppressive there. And I was like, actually, no. Number one, everybody loves my muscles. Men, women, <laughs> they're like, yeah, I love your body. And I was like, I love that you say this. And it's like, because it's one of those things that I worked for. If somebody was like, you have great tits, which obviously it's, I don't have great tits, but if I did have great tits and somebody kept saying it, there's nothing I can do about that. I'm just born with it. Do you know what I mean? After a while, it becomes a burden. Like, are you, am I only defined by my great tits? But if you tell me that my arms look good, bitch, I put in hours in the gym. I want to hear all about why you think my arms are good. It's the same with my ass. Somebody's like, you have a great ass. And I'm like, I squat every day, ass to grass. Thank you very much. Hell yeah. This is where I hope we would go. Okay. So that's why like, I come here <laughs> and like the guys celebrate it. They're like, oh, I love your arms. Do you box? And I'm like, well, yes, I do. Yeah. And it's just like, they're really excited. They're like, women don't normally have this. And I was like, no, a lot of the women here dress really conservatively. Right. I was like, why don't you send those women in Indonesia to the gym more? And they're like, oh. and I I've seen some Indonesian women in the gym here and they work hard. There's, you know, there's, I think a few, one championship, I believe, has a few Indonesian women fighters as well. There was so, uh, last weekend or two weekends ago? Did you see the games? I was just going to say, did you see the Asia games with that one woman, the um, speed climber? She was insane. Insane. Oh my like God. Like a spider. I was, oh yeah. Everyone's like, look at Spider-Man's like, you know, a Muslim woman. And I was like, she was such a hero. Like yeah. I'm getting goose flesh just thinking about her. No, I found it so inspiring. She flew up there. Uh-huh. I think everybody dreams of flying and it was just so magical to see her do that. Like that woman just like fled. I was like, fuck. Unfortunately, I went to the women's basketball game against China. <laughs> oh my God, how did that go? <laughs> lost by, I think lost by like 100 points, 80 points. Yeah. Oh, really? But yeah, that, that woman was inspiring. Like mm. we were watching that on TV. No, I got to see the, um, when I was in London in 2012, I got tickets to the wrestling. Oh. So yeah, I got to see the, um, oh, what was it? I think I saw 65, I think I saw 65 kilo men's, and there was another one. I like, well, I just like wrestlers in mm. general, which is one of those weird things, because I coach wrestling, but I was always like, I was very professional about it. Now, there's like none of that weird Catholic priest shit going on with me and, you know, wrestling. But it was one of those things that I also have to say that I think wrestlers are awfully handsome. So, bless them. And they're like funny ears. No, I'm kidding. I wrestled, so I have like small funny ears as well. Yeah, let me try to, let yeah. me try to do this maybe linearly. So... Uh, I've had a few uh, people from the MMA world on the podcast, oh. and actually, Anne I had spoken to when I was in the states, like just when I started this, and mm. she had agreed to. But it was like right before she retired and sort of transitioned into one in a like supervisory role. Mm. Um, but I saw her write about your book, which just came out. Oh and, yeah, and then I looked she you up. At my house recently. We, oh really? Yeah, we're like besties. We hang out and we go. Out, we we hang out all the time together. Yeah, awesome. she was at my house. Went to karaoke together. Um, yeah, we take vacations. We volunteered in Sri Lanka together to like, oh. yeah, we do all sorts of weird shit. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I did. She's inspiring, actually. Anne doesn't, Anne lights up a room. She's incredible. Really? Yes. I mean, you have to meet her. If you ever get the opportunity to in person, I um, will be out. And I, I never say this to her because I think it would embarrass her, but we'll be out. And I mean, heads just turn. She, mm. you know, 
I think some people just have this this magic about them or this presence, and Anne has that. Like she literally does light up a room. That's awesome. I've never met anybody that has that remark, you know, that remarkable effect on people the way she does. Awesome. She is amazing. Yeah. So this is Anne Osmond, um, former fighter, has a role in in One FC now here in <clears throat> Asia, and she posted your new book, which just came out. And then I looked you up, and I was like, holy crap. Uh, there's a lot here to, to, to talk about, so I'm happy that, uh, that you came on. Oh, cheers. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I guess, you know, we all wear our lives, like, clothes, I think, when we start talking. You know, bits of it will kind of come out. I mean, obviously, we have some of our lives are, like, underwear, which, mm. you know, or, like, nipple rings, maybe. <laughs> I had a weird thing about nipple rings that I was, I don't have nipple rings, but I was talking about them at the improv thing on Monday, oddly. Um, and I, <laughs> Anyways, but, you know, all aspects of our life, I think, you know, we do, we wear them, you know, in the way we talk, uh, sometimes people have tattoos, the way we look, um, the people we choose to hang out with. And again, like the topics that we choose to talk about, all of these things are, you know, little cues about who we are. And again, all of these cues kind of come, come in, I think, because, because of how we present ourselves mm. and they're all driven by our own experiences. So I'm... Um, Am I correct in thinking that the the book is mostly autobiographical? Um, so it's actually a memoir. Okay. I, uh, I, I'm, there's, I don't think I'm important enough um, that I have an autobiography. If I was Barack Obama or uh. Teddy Roosevelt or, you know, um, yeah, anybody. Like, you know, I mean, I think autobiographies are somebody that's like, they've done a ton of shit. Okay. And like they've been established and everybody knows who they are. And, you know, you've written it by, your, by yourself, but it's all very factual. Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be dry. A memoir, um, interestingly, and I had to actually study this when I got asked to do this book, a memoir, interestingly, has more of um, like a story feel to it. So it, it should actually feel almost like you know the way you've written any story. So you're not really hung up on dates. And mm. again, unlike an autobiography, um, a lot of it, you have to be really sensitive to the people that you're writing about. So um, I tended to kind of anonymize almost everybody, but publicly known figures. So Ann Osmond's actually mentioned in the book. Oh, really? Yeah, and a few other UFC fighters whom I know, or who I've like competed with, or or what have you. So any publicly known figures were mentioned. Uh, Joey Ramone. I had a whole thing with Joey Ramone. I stalked him. No, I didn't stalk him. I went to I went to go meet him um, to get a free. A ticket to his concert because I was underaged, and I just had my daughter. I was a you know single teenage pregnant welfare mom in like the ghetto in Lynn, Massachusetts, and um, he was at the radio station down the street from my house. And like one of my friends is like, he's on the radio, and I was like, oh, that's right next to my mm. house. And I just baked brownies, so I like threw some brownies. <laughs> I know because like I was a mom, and I was like, I'm gonna be domestic, and yeah, I made brownies. So when my daughter just woke up from her nap, and I was like, oh my God, it's fate. So I like threw the brownies in the Ziploc bag, put my daughter in her stroller, and I went down and I waited outside, and Joey Ramone came out, and I went up to him, and I was like, I mean, A, I don't know, so like, because I was a big fan for years as a teenager, I was like this sketchy little punk rocker kid, and um, Joey Ramone's massive, like the guy is like gigantic, he's like, he towered over me which I wasn't expecting. So I'm A, like, you know, kind of gobsmacked because I'm like, oh, I'm meeting an idol. And then B, he's huge. And I was like, holy fuck. I was like, I'm a huge fan. And I was like, I really want to go to your concert. But A, I'm on welfare because I'm broke and I'm pregnant. You know, I have my daughter. And I was like, and B, I'm underage. And he's like, oh, I'll just put you on as my cousin. You're on the guest list. What? And I was like, and then I was like, I made you brownies. And he's like, is there hash in them? And I was like, no, I I made them for my daughter. I was like, there's no hash in these at all. And um, he bent down and he signed her sneaker. And then, um, 
And then, yeah, he put me on the guest list. Whoa. So, yeah, I know. I, but I, I think that, you know, life is all about that, that, like, you know, opportunities are always there, and it's just, you know, those who dare win. Yeah, that's something I'm much more aware of now that we're, you know, we're changing my life in this way. Like, the more you put yourself out there, the more things happen. start to happen, yeah. Well, um, I, have you ever had your tarot cards read? Oh, my God, so... Like the fir- the third episode we did on here, I didn't have tarot cards read, but I had uh, like an astrologist come on and read my like my signs where they were at at that time and everything. Uh, but I haven't had tarot cards read. Oh, I'm a tarot card reader. Jeez. Yeah, I have cards in my bag. I could I could probably do you a reading if you wanted. But Let's, I know I know we're pressed. No, no, it's I might be able I feel to. Like this could I go do, for I five do hours. A quick and dirty one. I know that's why I'm like fuck. I mean, if I actually, I was gonna say the worst thing is I could always like continue this later tonight. Because I have a four o'clock and a five o'clock, and then I'm back, and I don't think the five o'clock is going to last much more than six thirty. Okay, let's see. Let's see where this goes. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. um, The thing with tarot cards, there's this one brilliant card called the Magician card, and I always call it the Tyler Durden card of the stack. Mm. And the Tyler Durden card of the Magician is basically um, we are all our own universes. So you know, there is no right or wrong in life. Literally, it's your own perspective. And um, your perspective can shift and change, you know, based on your own experiences, you know, your beliefs, et cetera, your values. Um, And you can decide whether they change or not. But, you know, it's one of these things that if you say you're going to have a bad day, you're going to have a bad day. And if you say you're going to have a good day, you're going to have a good day. Mm. Because, you know, it's your own universe. It's the lens you put on it. And that's really all that life is, is just fucking that. And then once you've unlocked that, like, it doesn't matter. So at the beginning of my book, I go to Singapore... And I gave away all of my money to my daughter. And I didn't have that much because I like, grew up super poor in the States and I don't know how to save. I do now, much better at it now. But then I didn't. And I did have enough money to give her to say, here, go buy your car because you want to go to the uni- uh, university and like study. And um, I got rid of all my belongings because I was like, I think I'm just going to kill myself. I was like, I was like properly. For real? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was totally like, I didn't know what else to do. So my daughter had moved away. So my role as a mother had like ended and died off effectively for me. Um, and anybody whose parent, whose like kids grow up and like, you know, move the nest, everyone gets empty nest syndrome. So yeah, it's one of those things that everyone has to deal with. And mine, unfortunately, was exacerbated by the fact that my fight career ended. I retired. I had a relationship. It was like a rebound from my marriage because my marriage had ended a few years previous. And then I'd had this rebound relationship that ended. And so a bunch of things were ending at once. And now I'm like a job had ended. So all of these things were just over. And um, because I'd usually spent my entire life kind of doing things for my daughter. like, And before it was my daughter. like It was just me being a teenager. Of like Things have to get better when I'm an adult and I can change things. And then I ended up getting pregnant and everyone's like, your life's over. And I was like, no, I'm going to make a good life for my daughter. So I'd always kind of push things ahead. And then when she was gone, I was like, oh, my God, what do I do now? Mm. Like, I'm all out of ideas. And the only thing that I had left was I was like, I said for years that I wanted to move to Singapore. That was a life goal of mine. And again, it brings me back to that talk about poverty and just the fact that, you know, poverty exists in Singapore just as it does everywhere else. However, when you're poor in the United States, like you're, you know, reviled almost. And again, that whole... You know, the way people talk about benefits and like, oh, people on welfare are disgusting. Then, you know, they're so judgmental and hateful about it. You know, rather than trying to help people, you know, out of something, you know, to kind of build them up, you know, you just shit all over them Mm. when they're in a bad space. And again, now with the opioid crisis, you're finding more and more people, you know, think they're okay. And it literally just takes, you know, maybe a broken ankle or a surgery or, you know, a bad day or a crazy weekend and then boom, you're addicted to opioids and before you know it, you're on the street selling your ass for crack. And, you know, it 
like you see a staggering number of people dying from it, you know, like high profile celebrities, uh, loads of people I went to school with, there are several people that are no longer with us. And I'm not that old. I'm like 41. Mm-hmm. So, and you look at all of that and you realize like, you know, there's no support network. It's all judgment and hatred. And again, you know, it's the same thing now in the United Kingdom. Um, you know, when I was in the UK, uh, they used to have a really decent, you know, kind of like, well, they had a decent benefits program when I got there in 2000. But um, it's almost like kind of reverted back to Dickensian times. Like uh, they don't have poor houses yet. Um, uh, are you a, are you a big reader by any chance? Yeah, a bit. Have you ever read George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London? No. Um, I would put that on my list if I were you. Okay. It's timeless. Just like Animal Farm, mm-hmm. just like 1984, George Orwell is a timeless classic. Just like The Little Black Dress, except in a really scary way. <laughs> but um, yeah, George Orwell just really seemed to kind of understand humanity and how we work. And Down and Out in Paris and London chronicles his own experiences of sleeping rough in London and in the UK, um, you know, back then. And it was just, as somebody who'd been homeless, I could really relate to it and um, all of his experiences. And yeah, he just, you know, he kind of just described the small things, you know, like, you know, having cigarettes or the idea that uh, he wrote this beautiful scene where he wanted to, he was so hungry, he had to get food. Um, And churches give out food, obviously, or various religious organizations. But there's always a catch. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So in order for you to get your meal, you have to go to church. Mm. And he just did. He, there's this beautiful scene he writes about going to church, and you know, just for the sake of the meal. And I remember having to do something similar in Canada, except like we didn't have to go to church. I think we had to get like some sort of a talk, and they were really shitty bologna sandwiches. Like they weren't worth it. I think I would have happily eaten out of the garbage. And as a matter of fact, I think I did next time. I was like, fuck those bologna sandwiches. Nothing against religion, but like, I'm not going to have it forced down my throat with like crappy bologna sandwiches. Pizza? Maybe. What were your circumstances though? Because I think I also read in like the, the notes for your book that you at some point were like living in a tent in the woods. Like, how did you, how does it come to be that you are a pregnant teenager? And what sounds like to me, were totally on your own at that point. Uh, I was. So I was a teenager. I was in care. I left home when I was 13 and I went into care um, and I ran away a lot. So I ran away from my parents' house. Um, I ran away from a lot of problems. We all do. I just seem to do it in extreme ways. But um, Care being like the state system? Yeah. So okay. DSS, DMH. I was also in the Department of Mental Health. Um, it's obvious. Actually, it's, I'm like, it's obviously harder to run away from mental hospitals. And I'm like, no, it's not. I've done it twice. Three times? No, twice. I think I've written about it twice. I'm like, oh my God. Because we edited out like so much shit in the book. And I'm like, I think I detailed two runs that I had done from two different psychiatric hospitals. But yeah, you can, I can run away from anywhere. I'm like a honey badger. Um, but yeah. That's, the nick, that's where the it nickname was, came from? No, no, no. My nickname was voted by the public. Okay. But I was funny enough, I just sent a honey badger video to my friend yesterday. I forget why. He'd made some comment and I was like, I sent him one about the honey badger escaping from his little like enclosure. And yeah, he's like, that guy just legged it. And I was like, we've all been there, man. We've all been there. But so when I ran away from care sometimes, and it's in the book how it happened, but I would just like run away. And there were a few times that I couldn't stay at my friend's houses because my parents would send the police over there. Like mm. my parents were kind of control freaks. So they were like, if you're not happy at home, you know, you're not going to be, you know, we're, we're going to make sure you're not happy anywhere. And they used to put me... They would, if I was in a placement that I enjoyed, I noticed that I often couldn't stay. Hmm. And my social workers would often be like, your parents aren't really happy that you're happy here. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a weird thing because you're like, oh, you should think your parents would want you to be happy. 
that it's also like if you've ever been in, you know, kind of a relationship, like if I can't have you, no one can. So they loved me, but they loved me like that. They loved me like Ike Turner loved Tina Turner. And nobody wants that Ooh, kind of that's love. That's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> that's exactly what it was. So yeah, I got I got lots of love. I just got Ike Turner kind of love from my parents. And that yeah, it wasn't nice. But um, so I ended up sleeping in the woods a few times and like my friends would come out and sneak me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or like we would make makeshift tents and shit like from like our jackets between rocks. <laughs> and then like I'd also slept like on sofas and stuff. I used to work in the local punk and hardcore scene in Boston. Oh. Yeah, so I did a lot of that. I had a radio station. Oh my God, there's this band called Converge, which they're still going now, apparently. What? I, One of my favorites. No, are they really? Uh-huh. So I actually had them on my radio show in high school. Really? They live near me. Yeah, so I had them on my radio show. I got kicked off the air. Um, and they dedicated a gig to me at the church in Harvard Square, which no longer exists. And um, they were so lovely. <laughs> but funny enough, um, years later, I'm in London. I work for Bauer Media and Publishing, and my daughter is doing an internship at Kerrang, so I'd bring home the magazines with her. And I was like, Converge. I was like, they're still around? And my daughter's like, yeah. And I was like, I knew these guys. I was like, I had them on my radio show. I went to all their gigs, and I was like, they know me. I mean, I'm sure they don't know who the fuck I am now. I think they well, like, And Jacob Bannon's into like MMA, and I think no, he was. I think he, he was. Uh, I think he was judging maybe like local shows. Never. Yeah. Well, you know what though? I actually say this in the book, but I think there's a definite synergy between MMA and you know hardcore music. Absolutely. So it's really funny that you say that. Oh my gosh, I should, oh, I don't even know how I'd get a hold of him or anything. I don't even know what I'd say. I'd be like, hey, you know, because my dad beat the shit out of me. That I could put in the book as well. So I got, oh no, wait. So my dad, my dad beat the shit out of me a bunch in the book. That's, that's not a spoiler. Like it's like in the first like five or 10 pages. But um, so when I got kicked off of the radio show, my dad, like, and I was gutted because like I got kicked off because I had the band on and I was really bad at like censoring. Like I would forget, Mm. do you know who Sam Black Church is? No. They're still not around then. Okay. I feel so old. <laughs> so Sam Black Church even played, oh my God, they played at the the Hemp Rally or the Freedom Rally. And I used to go, I used to go to that when I was a teenager as well. Anyways, um, so Sam, Sam Black Church had this song called Formaldehyde and it just has motherfucker in it like every 20 seconds. And I would just not like... I would not censor it, not because I'm against censorship, but just because I'd be like, oh, oh, I'm really flaky. Anybody who knows me now will tell you, like, I'm kind of flaky. Um, and I just kept forgetting to do it. And I was like, well, we'll just censor a few seconds after. And it sort of counts for, you know, A for effort. And uh. it's like, so apparently, like, the station manager then had to watch, like, you know, my, my show because they, they got complaints, which I was like, oh, my God, enough people watched that somebody complained. I was like, I didn't think anybody gave a shit about our show. So anyways, Converge comes on that night and um, a bunch of friends are like, oh my God, we're huge fans. We all want to come over. You know, like what year Uh, around? Oh my God. Let me see. It was 1992. It had to be 92. I think I was 15. Wait, now I'm going to have to do maths. Yeah, because it was 15, 92. They were like brand new at that point. They were young. Like they were playing, like they were only a few years older than us, like I think one of them lived, because I went to Maskinomet over in Topsfield, and I think they lived in Middleton. One of them lived in Middleton or Andover. I don't know. Oh, dear. But anyways, like, yeah, they, they happily came on the show, and we were all like, and they were super lovely. Um, the whole band came in. 
But yeah, like then all my friends came in and then we ordered pizza and all this was against the rules. Like we were supposed to just have the band on. And I think I'd had a skinhead on like a few weeks before, which also apparently caused controversy, which I thought we were just having a really great dialogue and apparently some people got like their knickers in a twist over it. But he wasn't like being racist. I mean, like I was genuinely like, you know, why do you feel this way? Blah, blah, blah. And like Jerry Springer before he got really weird and like kind of, Jerry Springer used to or maybe it was Geraldo. Never mind. Sorry, I digress. But yeah, so we had them on, and all my friends came in, and then all of a sudden the police show up. And it's not the police, it's the station manager, who's also a police officer. And we were all like, fuck. And he's like, turn, you know, you're off the air. And we were like, oh my God. So, and I, you know, converge is like, <laughs> thanks for having us on. And I was like, you're welcome. Um, and they were like, sorry, you got fired. And I'm like, no, it's okay. <laughs> I was like, I can take this. But I got home that night, and like, my Dad was horrible. He didn't beat me up, but he told me I was a worthless piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. And then um, I got invited to the Converge gig. And of course, there was no way my dad was going to let me go because I was grounded and I was an utter failure. And I forget how, but I like either snuck out or I lied. And I went to this gig. And of course, I came back late and then my dad beat the shit out of me. And then I left home again because I would only ever come home for like a few weeks or maybe a month. And then I was like, I can't live here. So Did yeah. Holy crap, <laughs> first of all. I know, right? <laughs> did, did you ever go down to, to New York from Massachusetts for shows? Uh, no, but when I was a dominatrix, I went down to New York before they closed all the S&M clubs. Oh my God, how do I do this interview? In a- I know, so that's why I'm thinking, I'm like, I can probably come back and I you can either get the room or I have a suite, I can always do it in the suite and it won't be anything weird. It's like a whole apartment like suite. So oh, crap. Let's see where this goes. Yeah, I, ha- yeah. I have something to do later, but... Um, no, I know. That's my thing. I'm, but later, you can always take a motorbike. And actually, if you take a motorbike, you can totally shower, either in the spa on the 50th or, like I said, I have a suite, so you can like close the bathroom and then I can just... This is nice here. It is nice, isn't it? So it's funny, because when I moved to Singapore, I was homeless again, and like I was ready to kill myself, and everyone... I was making $10 a day at the shitty gym I was coaching at. And like, I was like, no, I'll be fine in three months. And everybody's like, no, you won't. And this is what I mean when I talk about the magician. So if you say that you're going to go out, like, you know, if I said, oh, I want to move to Uganda in six months and like, you know, work in politics over there. You know what? Seriously, if you say it to enough people and you just start to take a few steps to looking into that, like Mm. you'll fucking get there. You can do literally anything you want, but it's about having conviction. It's about being open you know, and it's, it's about contacting people and reaching out. And it's, it's remarkable because I started to realize, and I write this in the book, like, because I've been very poor, but I've also been, you know, very comfortable. And I think, you know, it's interesting because none of that changes who I am and how I feel about myself. And I think you kind of just realize, you know, just with all things, you know, it's just a skin. It's, you know, it's your hardware is your hardware. You know, whether you have like, you know, a shitty like, thing on your phone or you decide to put a Doraemon sticker on it or whatever the fuck it is, like you're still just you. And, you know, I think when you start to realize that your own happiness um, and your life and, you know, your perspective and your universe is within your control, you stop really giving a fuck about all of this other material shit. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So no. Oh, yeah, because you're doing it too. See what I mean? Welcome to the club, my friend. Yeah. I, I don't know if it will get as colorful as your story in some you way. I don't know. You don't know. Seriously, I never thought I was going to leave the state I grew up in. I, I don't, if it's too personal, you don't have to say no, it. But I it, just was talking to you about being a dominatrix in New York. That's true. Good point. 
when you became, I guess, like estranged from your family at that point, mm-hmm. is is that the last time you've seen your folks? No, or? no. And the book kind of goes into that. Like, okay. Unfortunately, that's a long and colored history. Um, the one thing I liked about writing the book, I got a lot out of it in terms of understanding them better. So are you familiar with narrative therapy? No. Okay. So narrative therapy is like a thing. Um, I think Burroughs Cyrilnik talks about it. And I'm going to forget... Oh, redirect is the name of the book and I'm going to forget the name of the fucking chap who wrote it which is terrible because I reached out and I was like I love your book but narrative therapy is um, it's important for all of us um, to basically understand our own narratives and a lot of times we'll remember one thing but we won't realize that it's connected to several other things mm. so in writing the story out you do start to see a narrative emerge and oftentimes, you know, depending on what you're writing about the first narrative is a jumbled mess and then the second time when you do a draft, because you have to do a draft, it's never going to be perfect the first time. I don't care who you are. The second time you write the draft, you'll start to notice you know, how you actually feel about it, whether it's anger or you know, maybe it's an accomplishment and you're like, I feel fucking great about this. But in the third and the fourth, if you're any kind of a good writer, you start to consider the other characters. Who are they? Why did they do that? What caused them to do that to me? And then you start to realize that it was never about you. And it was never done to you. You know, it was their own shit that they're dealing with and it just spills over into everybody else's. So, you know, when you start to understand that about people, you know, you're able to kind of get better clarity and also to kind of reconcile everything that's happened to you um, and understand it and kind of write with a bit of empathy. Because I know a lot of people commented to me, friends and strangers as well now, are like, I can't believe you were so nice about your parents in that book. They're horrible. And I said, well, you know, nobody's ever actually horrible. Everybody has a lot of horrible experiences that they're trying to deal with. And, you know, again, it's having self-awareness. It's, you know, kind of doing the work, you know, to understand why you're horrible. A lot of us can't bear to think about it. So, you know, after a while, you start to forgive people that do shitty things to you because you realize they're probably in a lot of pain. So, and I mean, the other thing with the book is it kind of also gave me a lot of clarity on me and some of the really unhealthy, ugly patterns that I've been repeating and, you know, some things that I really needed to improve and change on myself. So it was, I was funny because the publisher, Edmund Wee, who runs Epigram Books, was like, you should be paying me because, you you know, this is narrative therapy for you. And I said, correct, Edmund. I was like, you're still fucking paying me for this book. I don't give a shit. And he did. But um, it was that interesting thing that he was absolutely right. It, um, I got a lot out of the process of writing that book. And it actually, so I was originally meant to write a second fiction book and it wasn't quite ready. And they were like, why don't you just write your life story because it sounds interesting anyways. And I was like, I could bang that out. And I was like, when you need it. And they're like, can you give us a draft of 300 pages in six weeks? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. Oh, no, no, I can do that. And I did it with no cocaine, which a lot of people who write are like, you wrote with no cocaine? Like Stephen King is probably like, bravo, woman. (laughs) If you ever read Stephen King's book, like, oh, yes. And he's like, oh, there's blood coming out of my nose. And I'm like... I love you, Stephen King. I was a bit like that with alcohol. Like I have um, my first book, I edited that whole book drunk. And it was like, you know, the guy that goes to sleep at night and the elves fix all the shoes, the cobbler. I was like that with alcohol for my first book. So I wrote it sober. I edited it drunk, which is, you know, everyone says is the worst way to do it. But it came out perfectly. Hemingway or something? It was No, it could have. It sounds like a Hemingway thing. (laughs) I thought it was, um, you know, we'll just say it's Hemingway. (laughs) <laughs> you can always look it up, but even the internet, I'm like, do I trust it? But yeah, it's, you know, they, they usually say, write drunk, edit sober, but I wrote sober, I edited drunk. And um, yeah, I remember like I would wake up the next morning and I was like, oh my God, I edited this. And I was like, fuck, because I got blackout drunk. I was going through a divorce and I'd been raped in the UK and I was going through this tribunal with the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority. 
Um, not because I got raped, like because rape happens, it's bad and it's terrible. And I could have just walked that off or gotten over it on its own, but it was the way the police treated me that was particularly traumatic. So like I didn't actually go after, I went after the rapist to try and prosecute him and then the police were like, we believed him over you. We found him on the criminal database, but we believed him over you. And you're like, what? So it's like, <laughs> seriously? Jesus. Yeah, so I was like, I'm going after you then, police. And I did. I went after the police with it. So I was dealing with that. I was dealing with a really acrimonious divorce um, because my ex-husband sued me for alimony. There's like 20, <clears throat> 20 books here. <laughs> I know. We did it all. Oh, so going back, as I always do this, my therapist is like, I don't know how you always manage to come back. And I was like, because I'm a shaggy dog. So to come back to it, they said 300 pages in six weeks. I wrote... 420 pages in seven weeks. And I gave it to them, and they were like, holy fuck, there's a lot of shit here. It's badly written. And I was like, all my first drafts are badly written. I was like, have faith, I know how to write. And they were like, okay, you're in. So I went on this really tight timeline, and I wrote the whole book out in 18 months. Whoa. Yeah, while I was doing my full-time job. And I'm producing a play at the moment like an idiot, and I volunteer with autistic kids. And I had a really ugly breakup because, as I learned in my book, I have terrible taste in men because of all the issues with my dad. Yeah, I have dad issues. Have you ever done a podcast before? Yeah, tons. I know, but I'm all over the place. I'm sorry. No. Actually, I feel like Joe Rogan doing these. Well, no, no, no. Okay, so like that's what I was just thinking of. (laughs) Sorry. No, 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 no. That's not. like a bunch of episodes of these and be like, we had her on again. It won't matter. Well, that's why I'm asking because I feel like you need a three hour format. I could do. I'm still good for time. Okay. Motorbike, bitch. Yeah, no, I have a lot. I'm sorry. No, uh, one thing I would be remiss if I didn't get to yes. is, um, so I, I looked up your fight career and I'm looking like, uh, she fought Julia Budd, Rin Nakai. Yeah, Julia Budd was a last minute replacement. Julia Budd split my eyebrow open. I just started getting eyebrow embroidery to tattoo over it. She's really lovely, by the way. And she's a lot, she looked a lot smaller in person, except on fight night, like when she rehydrated, she looked enormous again. <laughs> yeah, she did. She was wonderful. Like it, it was such a shame. Like oh, I had, I had no corner for that fight. So I had a fan of mine who's also Wait, a friend. What corner me and L. J. Adams um, from Leicester <laughs> Fighters. She actually worked for the women's rugby team for the UK, and she knew how to do weight cuts because I just had to make weight. So I literally showed up, made weight, and then got my ass kicked. And it was funny because I got two grand for that fight, and the fight lasted two minutes, so I literally got paid $1,000 a minute to get my ass handed to me by Julia Budd. That sort of hints at the point that I'm getting to. Um, like you're, that I was a journeyman? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, 2005 um, is... Kind of the early days of MMA, but for... 2003. All right, so more to the point. Yes. For women's MMA, mm. that's, that's like the Stone Ages. It was, and there was only about, I think there were five of us in the UK doing it. One of them was Rosie Sexton, who is amazing. Another was Ash Daly, but technically she's Ireland, not the UK. Um, but there were a couple of us that were uh, pioneers, quote unquote, um, but yeah, I actually, I ended up doing it in the gym uh, with men. So I just trained with men for years. And I mean, it's so beautiful now to see like women doing the UFC, um, like women like Ann Osmond. Like I think I cornered Ann for one of her fights or I helped corner Ann for one of her fights. And I've like, you know, I do a couple of camps, I'd fly over and stuff. And um, yeah, no, I just, I'm so excited to see women in sport now because I think it's one of the most empowering things. Um, I, one of the books I'm reading at the moment is The Body Keeps the Score, which is how um, emotional trauma is stored physically. Mm. 
And one of the things that they talk about with trauma, you know, be it emotional, is, you know, dance, movement, Muay Thai, MMA, all of these activities really help you come to terms with trauma and kind of, um, they almost like reunite you or reacquaint you with your, your physical self. Um, and one of the things that I love, I think it's one of the few things that I don't suffer from is like a negative self-image. I was talking to, I was talking to my therapist about this earlier this week. And, um, you know, he's like, you know, because I said, oh, you know, what, what are these like statements do you feel are true? And one of them was like, you know, I feel ugly. And I was like, I don't feel ugly at all. I was like, I know I'm not to everybody's taste, but I was like, that's why Baskin Robbins has 31 flavors, <laughs> right? And also, because I worked as a dominatrix, you know, there's somebody out there for everybody. Like, I want somebody who dresses up like a horse and will wear a butt plug, you know, that's like a cucumber or whatever. And it's like, there's somebody out there for you. You know, you want to be vomited on? Trust, girlfriend. There's somebody out there for you. There is somebody out there for everybody. And when you start to realize that you're like, you know, do I want to be like, you know, the face that like, you know, sets a thousand ships? No, I don't want to be Helen or Troy. I just want to mean something to somebody. And to be honest with you, I'd rather mean somebody to somebody for who I am rather than what I look like anyway. But the other thing was when doing sport, you start to realize that again, you are in control. I can lose weight whenever I want. I can get jacked. I can go lean. I have control over my body. And I think when you start to learn that, you know, you learn that through getting in touch with it physically, through dance, through movement, through yoga, um, you know, through MMA, through boxing. I had um, my, and this, for whatever reason, we cut this out of the book, but I had my teeth knocked out in a street fight when I was 16. This Marine came up to, and like, he was bothering one of my friends and I stupidly stuck up for my friend because I stick up for everybody. I'm, a, I'm just like that. I, I'm like the chicken hawk. I'm like, oh, I'm a little chicken hawk. So I stood up to this guy and of course I had like purple hair, half of it was shaved and he like pushes me and I'm like, you're not supposed to push women. And of course then he knocked my teeth out and I adrenaline kicks hell? in. I get back up. My teeth are hanging in my mouth and I'm like, I'm going to fucking kill you. And I chased him out of the parking lot of the Richdales, right? And my friends are like, Danielle, we have to take you to the A&E and put your teeth back in. And I'm like chain smoking in the car. And I was like, the nicotine will get to me quicker because my teeth are hanging out. So oh these, my God. these three are cubic zirconian. And this, uh, this is oh, just yeah. a gold tooth from uh, Broxism. <clears throat> and I'm getting another one. My dentist is like, you're going to be the pimpiest old lady ever. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I kind of like it. I was, oh my God. I was in Vegas like a few years. No, was it last year? I was in Vegas last year and there was this guy that had like gold teeth and I was like this young kid, like, you know, he's like wearing a nice like Adidas tracksuit. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, I have gold teeth too. And like we were comparing gold teeth and I was like, go on with your bad self. Have a lovely day. So oh yeah, <clears throat> I know, right? Did, did you, so how do you go from street fighting kid to training? Like, did you train in a specific discipline in the beginning? No, I got really fat. So I got, um, I got really fat and I was married and my ex-husband, um, he's a writer still, as far as I know. I think he is because he came out with a second book, which I know he's not going to hear about this, but I'm really proud of him and happy he's doing well, um, which again was that whole narrative therapy. But um, we were covering fights. He wanted to go to MMA fights for free. So he became like a, and I was bankrolling him. Like I had a full-time proper day job and I was fat. And like we did judo for a while. We did capoeira and I was still fat. Cause like you just get fat when you get like, you know, you don't know how to eat and you don't take care of yourself and you're married, you let yourself go. True. So we're there and um, I'm helping him take notes so he could take photos of the fighters. And there are these like local MMA shows. This is in 2003. And uh, this ring car girl comes out and like, she looks like, she's really like, she actually looks like me. You know, she's actually, she's a bit bigger and she's probably slightly muscular. But um, she walks around and my, my ex-husband, who's my husband at the time, goes, 
you know, that ring card girl wants to fight. And I was like, oh, good for her. And he's like, yeah, but she can't find an opponent. And I was like, oh, that's tragic. I was like, well, how much does she weigh? And he's like, well, she's going to fight at 70. And I was 80 kilos at the time. And I was like, I want to lose 10 kilos. And I've been in a fight. I was like, I'll fight her. This is how I did improv on Monday, by the way. I'm like, I enjoy doing this. I'll try it. And actually, just like my first fight, my first improv experience, I totally bombed. Everyone was really nice about it. But they were like, damn, girl, you're all over the place. Kind of like today and right here. Anyhow, I was like, I'll fight her. My ex-husband's like, no. And I was like, no, I want to fight her. I want to I lose weight. I want to get fit. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Chicken hawk, chicken hawk, chicken hawk. So he tells the promoter. The promoter's like, yeah, we'll have her fight. Awesome. Great. So I show up and like this woman, like nobody sits there and says like, you know, the ring car girl did foxy. They, they said, oh, she did foxy boxing. She did not do foxy boxing. They flew that woman out to Vegas to box other women, not in a bikini, but as a boxer. Did you have like a camp or anything? No, because back in 2003, it was like hardcore. You know what I mean? It was just mm. do it yourself. So Pierre Guillet um, and David McLaughlin, who are like, again, two old school MMA pioneers, um, did some training. I'd actually had a bit of um, judo. I did a year of judo and I was like the speed throwing champion of my club. So, you know, and I have a big ass. So like judo is perfect for people with big asses. Anybody who's got big asses out there, try judo. Hips, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, again, all you have to do is just bend over and you just flick them over with your ass. And your friend's like, wow. And you're like, I know, right? And like the bigger your ass, I think. It's like a it's like a launch pad. It just goes. <laughs> so, anyways, I had some judo, and um, you know, I was just scrappy. But um, interestingly enough, she she's a boxer, and it, again, going back to trauma, she hits me in the head, and it stunned me. And I think because all I could remember is I could hear the bones hit my skull, like her fingers, and I was reminded of the same sound when that marine had hit me in the face, and I could hear his bones hit my oh. yeah, and I was like, and and all of a sudden I froze. And she just she just continued to like you know punch me because I'd gone in for a takedown. Oh my god, it was an ugly fight. They threw in the towel. It was catastrophic. And um, she, I had a beer with her afterwards to say, "Hey, congratulations." She goes, "I was really mad at you." And I was like, "Why?" She goes, "You walked into the Yogi Bear song like it was a joke." And I was wearing a Kazushi Sakuraba mask, cause old school. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I said, oh, that. I said, well, I said, my plan was, I said, you know, if I walked in, because you know the Yogi Bear song, right? Yogi Bear is smarter than the average bear. So I thought, like, everybody would be like, oh, that bitch is dead clever, or oh, that bitch doesn't take it too seriously. This is your walkout music? Yeah, that was my walkout music. Oh my in God. a Kazushi Sakuraba mask. Like, I am just a hot mess all over. Is there a video of that? I don't know. If there is, let me know. I've seen a photo of her with me in the school headlock of doom on Google. So I know you can still find that photo. But I don't know if the video's out there. I wonder. It was at Ultimate Combat in 2003. I think it was May or June. Um, Where was it in the world? UK. Okay. So UK. I fought out of the UK. I moved to London in 2000 um, with my ex-husband who's British. And my daughter, who's not. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I walk out to that. And, and I was like, oh, and I explained that. She's like, oh. She's like, wow, it really pissed me off. And I was like, yeah, I could tell. You beat the shit out of me. And I have like a huge hematoma on my forehead that gradually leaked down into my eye. Um, but no, she was really lovely. <laughs> I think she went to cycling after that. Um, and then my career continued because I had such a great experience doing it, like preparing for it. And I really enjoyed like kind of going through it because like you're facing your fear. And I mean, like the Tibetans every day, you know, kind of the Tibetans every day take a moment to reflect on being dead and like our own mortality. And in doing so, you start to realize that if I was to die tomorrow, what do I need to do? You know, and you kind of face your fears. And again, you know, in doing fighting or facing any of your fears, you are thinking like, if I die, you know, at least I've done this. So I really enjoyed that. And I also enjoyed all the prep work and the focus. Um, And I really liked that I could redefine violence because my dad used to beat me up so much. So it was like, 
even though like, I mean, you know, obviously it was hard getting hit by her or even having my teeth knocked out, but I'm always like still not as bad as my dad. And I think again, it's like, cause my dad also added on like verbal abuse about like what a horrible person I was while he was beating me. Nobody ever did that. Same thing in the hardcore. So in the hardcore movement in Boston, I was one of the few girls that used to go into the pit. And again, like it was great. You just go in there and like you're getting flung around by these massive dudes. And oh my God, I saw Motorhead a bunch. Henry Rollins when he did the West Memphis Three Tour and did all the Black Flag music in London. And I would, um, I was a feeder, so I used to feed guys onto the pit, like you know, for like crowd surfing. So I would just pick people up and. I can I can lift up like a lot of weight because I'm kind of hench. So I would just and guys were watching me do it. They're like, "How are you picking these guys up?" And I'm like, "Well, how are you picking them up?" I'm like, "What the fuck, you know?" And then you just go in there. But it was great to be able to kind of redefine violence. Somebody's hitting you, but there's no malice. You know what I mean? And it was the same thing with boxing and MMA. Like whenever um, these training partners I had would work with me, I mean, these guys are like they're friends of yours, but they're also punching you in the face. And you start to realize that, you know, it's, you are, you're actually kind of training your body to say, you know what, what happened was bad, but this is why it was bad, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And now you're stronger that like, I mean, fuck, if somebody tried to fuck me up now, I'd destroy them, especially my dad. It's kind of, and like, not just because he's old, like if, if I got to travel back in time, and I would like totally destroy my dad, totally destroy my dad, traveling back in time now. That hardcore MMA connection is interesting. I hadn't quite ever thought of it that way. Um, all the MMA fighters you meet, probably about 90% of them are dealing with some demons. Not all of them, and I'm not going to make yeah. a blanket statement. Everybody has their own challenges. And in doing a lot of that physical work, you're able to take control. Yeah, shows are often a way to have that sort of catharsis. I mean, especially for like... Uh, a young teenage kid who is damaged and then also just going through the life things of like being flooded with hormones and all these changes and things like that. It's beautiful, isn't yeah. it? I used to love I used to love hardcore shows. Oh my god, that skateboarding. I used to do all that stuff. But yeah, no, it was it was wonderful. Oh, I can still remember it. Like I mean even as an adult, like when I would go to a gig, I think I saw was it the last I'm trying to think of like the last proper hardcore kind of gig I went to where I was in the pit. It might have been the cramps. Like before Lux Interior died. I don't know. Or maybe, I don't know. But I've, yeah, I can't remember. Singapore <laughs> actually has like an interesting little seen. subversive thing that's happening. There's a big underground and like indie music scene. I don't know about pits so much. Um, that they, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on. Singapore, Sing Singapore actually has a lot of really cool stuff happening underground. Mm. You'd be amazed. Like, yeah, it, it, it's, um, yeah, I think on the surface, just like how Indonesia is kind of on the surface, everyone's like, oh, they're really like, you know, conservative Muslims. And it's like, no, these guys love to party and they're super chillaxed and they're just laid back and they're the loveliest people. When you go to Singapore, everyone's like, oh, it's very strict and everyone's super goody goody. And it's like, dude, no, they're not. I was in Brunei recently. Oh my God. And everything you're not supposed to do happens. Of course. Like, but it's the same thing. Have you seen, um, oh, what is it? No one knows, what is it? No one knows about Persian cats? Is that what it's called? Oh my God. I think it is. No one knows about Persian cats. Them. There's this great film about the underground music scene in Iran. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it is. No one knows about Persian cats. I'm going to have to look it up and I'll send it to you. But yeah, it's. Yeah, we um, could do an hour on music. Yeah, no, I know. Like, I, yeah, music and then sport and then uh, the dominatrix work, loads of people ask questions about. Uh, God, there's a bunch. Oh, and then I had like a kid, so obviously being a parent and then the work I do now, I multifaceted. But it basically means that I can network with anybody. 
Let's plug the book okay. before we go. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. I'm going to give you my card. Girls Can't Be in the Mafia. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? My dad said it to me. So my dad... Um, my dad was in the Teamsters, which is a euphemism for the mafia. Yeah, um, of course. My granddad. So my granddad and my uncle knew Jimmy Hoffa, Whoa. Whitey Bulger. Um, my dad knew quite a few people in the um, Summerhill gang. Really? And when we were little girls, my sister and I were taken to a mafia bar in Somerville so, and sat at the bar. And I remember we had hot dogs and Shirley Temples. And I remember my sister said to me later, because... Um, she's like, do you remember dad took us to a mafia bar? He said he did. And I was like, dude, he did. She's like, I'm an alcoholic. She's like, I would remember if we went to a bar when we were kids. And I was like, no, dude, we went to this bar. Because I was like, I don't forget hot dogs. I love hot dogs. And kids are sometimes conditioned, right? Or almost like primed for like later in life to be... Oh, no, we weren't. So what okay. ended up happening was, is when because we're girls. So when um, whew, I was like seven or eight, and my dad had like this jacket with a Teamsters patch on it. And, you know, my dad would always say weird shit. Like all my friends are either dead or in prison or all these other weird like manly maxisms, maxims. And I sat there and I was like, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be in the mafia. And he's like, don't be stupid. Girls can't be in the mafia. And I was like, aw. And that really stuck with me for years for whatever reason. And I was just like, because I always like, there was this show when I was a kid called Sha Na Na. And they saw this really corny song, like, if, I, if a guy can do it, a girl can too. And I really took it to heart. Like, I was all about like equality and stuff. And I'm still like, I don't. I don't like, I, what I think I, it's, this is one of those inflammatory things I'm going to say, but I don't consider myself a feminist. I consider myself an egalitarian. And I think the problem, I think feminism was very important as a movement in like the 60s and 70s. And I think women were like, hey, you know, we need to start getting paid and like not being treated like shit and not having to rely on people like men because they're fucking us hardcore. But it's kind of moved past that now where we have to kind of look at, you know, everybody. And we start to, you know, have to have this dialogue about everybody and like, you know, kind of treating everybody as equals and kind of really understanding people and bridging those gaps. So I do this, um, I moderate these conversations called Tribeless in Singapore regularly. Oh my God, you're here at the end of the month, aren't you? I'm sort of like, I can be, like if this you're is my in life Singapore, like Well, if you're in day. Singapore at the end of the month, you should come to a tribalist conversation. I don't know if I'm moderating it or if I'm helping and we're training a host and they're going to moderate it. But um, they're these beautiful, it's in this little speakeasy bottle shop um, called The Proof Flat. And we do these great conversations with a bunch of strangers. Cool. It's like tea with strangers, but with alcohol. Awesome. Yeah, it is. So um, I'm going to give you my card. Awesome. It's got my mobile number. So Thank you. you. Can send me a WhatsApp because I'm better on that great. than I am on Instagram. I, I'm, I feel like an old woman every time I log into that shit. I'm sorry. For, for people from the States, like when will it be available through like Amazon or local bookstores and things like I, that? So they're releasing the ebook soon. Um, interestingly enough, go to Epigram's website or their Facebook page and be like, we want this book. We want this book. Okay. Um, I'll link to that too. Yeah, yeah. No, totally do that for me. Um, just because I think it's going to be, it's released in Southeast Asia and Singapore and we're actually officially launching it at the Singapore Writers Festival in November. So if anyone's at the Singapore Writers Festival, you can come down and see me talk in live person. And unfortunately, it's probably going to be just fucking like this. Um, and I'm doing like two panels as well as the official launch. And then um, I think what I'm hoping is if everything goes well, I think they're going to re- really sit in their UK office next. Okay. And then, because I have like a huge like base in the UK because I live there. Not fan base, but like friends and like, you know, friends are family. So family in the UK. Um, and then, yeah, I'm hoping, like, I think it's, if it does well, because Epigram has a couple of books on Amazon that have done well and then they release it. But I think you have to basically, it's the whole demand thing. Okay. 
Well, once it is on Amazon, like I, I always do a giveaway when there's an author. Oh, cool. And that's the easiest thing for me to do while I'm traveling is just order it on Amazon and ship it I know, to someone. Of course. We so we'll do something when it comes it out. The airport in Singapore. Like it's available in Singapore. I was going to try and bring one and I forgot. I was also trying to bring one to a friend last week and I forgot. I'm, yeah, no worries. I have a lot of shit going on, so it's really hard to remember. Like, I write down what I have for breakfast, so I can remember what I have for <laughs> breakfast. I also had the same thing for breakfast every day. It's a protein shake. Um, but yeah, let me know what you're doing this evening, because I should be back by about 6.30. Okay. So I'm going to, yeah, I have to go take somebody drinking really quickly, but it'll be quick. Um, and then I have to go try and get money off of somebody else. I have to try and get money off of everybody today. That's my objective and why I'm here. Um, I like it. Yeah, I know. That's what I was like. I was like, oh my God, I'm not in the streets and I'm still begging for money. <laughs> I was like, fuck. Oh, well. Sorry. <laughs> no, listen. Thank you for doing this. No, this is no awesome. Worries. Listeners can go to the show notes to find out about the book. I'll link to uh, your Instagram account too. Cheers. Yeah, please. It's private, but like if you just put a request and I'll add you, it's fine. I'm like, I don't know. I just, ugly breakup and yeah, ugly breakup. <laughs> no worries. Uh, Another show. It's like in that one. I'm like that's only for my therapist at the moment. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, like you need long format, like Joe <laughs> Joe Rogan. I Aww. know you listen to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, but uh, <laughs> bring her on. Uh, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, that does it for episode number seventy nine of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you, listeners, voyagers, for tuning into this episode. Thank you to Danielle. I really hope we get to do it again because there's so much more to be uncovered. Uh, check out the show notes for this episode for Epigram, for access to Danielle, for my Patreon account, all the stuff that is always there. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Uh, I love doing what I'm doing right now. It's my dream life, so... Uh, appreciate everyone who's along for the ride and, and following it and sending me some feedback and stuff like that. As always, everybody, please take care of each other. Till next time. <laughs>